Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about Best Picture nominees from various years. This year, this episode, we will start with the year 1985, the 58th Oscars. Bowling for Soup is thrilled. (laughs) 58th Oscars. The early 2000s. And it's our 503rd episode. How are you guys doing today? (laughs) What? I'm good. good. I'm confused, yes. but I'm good. Well, yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, we are talking today about The Color Purple, the film The Color Purple, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, whom we've talked about already on this podcast. And the screenplay is written by, I'm going with Menno Mayes. That's my pronunciation. I apologize for the faithful. I support that. Who... I believe that is correct, actually. Okay. Yeah, the Dutch, the Dutch screenwriter for Behind the Color Purple. There we go. And this is based on the novel of the same name by Alice Walker, which was published in 1982 and awarded the Pulitzer Prize that year. I did... Extremely acclaimed novel, yeah. I did actually Google, and they told me it's Pulitzer, not Pulitzer. So I'm running with Pulitzer for the rest of this conversation. Well, I'm also from the Midwest, so I could be wrong. We should... Everything that's cultural. I was going to say, you think we we would have some... There's a connection between Pulitzer and the the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, so we should know better. Pulitzer. Yeah. The Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Have you guys... What was your experience with this movie before this week? Had you seen it before? Heard of it? Definitely heard of it. Okay. uh, Had not seen it in in its entirety beginning to end. I've seen seen many many scenes from the film, but never watched... Actually sat down and watched it all the way through. Yeah. Josh? Uh, I had not seen it before... Uh, watching for this podcast and my knowledge of it was kind of like always as a bit of trivia as like a curiosity academy awards wise which i'm sure we'll get into later yeah. but um it's all kind of been my understanding that this was like kind of a weird one for spielberg to make and kind of like his first legitimate oscar play um i think all of which we'll talk about later yeah i was like it, it's always been like in my mind as I, I think it's it's interesting how little i ever see people talk about this movie mm. and how few people seem to have seen it i guess even and like again so the only the only reputation it had in my mind was like um its place in oscar history and and its weird place in spielberg's filmography yeah and it's a movie that i think is somewhat ubiquitous in the sense that a lot of people have heard of it and they know who's in it i don't know that a lot of people actually know spielberg directed it but the the novel is quite beloved and the novel's considered a contemporary classic uh, so I think more people have, have read and appreciate the novel. I would suppose a few things. A few things you, uh, you mentioned that people are aware of who's in it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew Whoopi Goldberg was in it, and I knew Oprah Winfrey was in it. Did you? Uh, I don't think I knew. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, did you know it was both of their screen debuts? Whoopi was actually in a movie called Citizen right before, but it's effectively both of their screen debuts. I did not know either one of those things. And so when I put it on for the first time, it's the, the title card said, and introducing Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. I had to like pause the movie and look up, wait, seriously? And also, uh, as far as Oprah was concerned, I also had to look up. Um, it, it seemed her, her casting and her character introduction seemed unceremonious given how immensely, immensely famous she is nowadays. Yeah. So I looked up. Where she was at in her career in 1985, she wasn't on national TV yet. No, she was still on. She was, she was still on Chicago TV. I think her, she her show, yeah, her show began the next year, right? The Oprah Winfrey yes. show was yeah. 1986. Exactly. She yeah. was not yeah, the she next was, year. She was not yet syndicated. I mean, it's 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 odd. This is there's a lot of there's an odd consortium of people behind this movie. The fact that two of well, two of the actors in the film that received Academy Award nominations will get to the Oscars of it all later, but. Two of the Oscar nominees, this is their debut. One of them is a comedian, and the other is a talk daytime talk show host. Yeah. 
I mean, so if nothing else, this movie deserves major props for giving us Oprah and Whoopi. I mean, honestly, two yeah. people, two people who are so ubiquitous, so everything, everywhere, all at once that I could just say Oprah and Whoopi, like they need no, yeah. you know, right. they're both mononyms for sure. Also, I found it, I found it uh, amusing that uh, Oprah's character um, is, I think, brief, uh, married to a character named Harpo. Yeah, yes, which yeah. would later become the name for a production company that made which is Oprah backwards. Oprah I found that extremely amusing. Yeah. Well, and then and then Suge Avery is played by Margaret Avery. There was a lot of weird yeah. sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, so a little bit more just about the background. Wait, what, what's, oh, your, what's your experience? This oh, movie? that's right. Yeah, I didn't, ask, yeah. I didn't ask myself that. So to answer your question, I had heard of it as well. I read the novel in grad school in 2020. I know this because it was, I think, the first novel we talked about once we went online for COVID. So it was mm. about three years ago I finished the novel. I'd never seen the film. And part of the reason why I picked the 1985 series, because this, this was my choice, I, I own whatever happens from here on out, is <laughs> these were five films that I haven't seen all the way through. I've seen most of Witness, but I haven't seen all the way through. And purposely because The Color Purple is a weird outlier for me on... Spielberg's filmography, where I've seen almost all of his films, but most of the ones that I haven't, it's like Always or the BFG. It's kind of, you know, but The Color Purple always felt like one where it was like, dude, you, you need to watch The Color Purple. So it's weird, though. I mean, it, we'll get to it, but like it's highly regarded, but also kind of like not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I don't know. We'll get to that for sure. So I'll do a little boilerplate stuff real quickly here. So as we mentioned, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Meno Mayes, again, apologize for the second time for that. Good job. And it stars Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, Danny Glover, which, you know, Danny Glover's always been, like, such a kind of warm figure to me. And you watch this and you're like, you son of a bitch. Yikes. Yeah. So this, is, uh, this is Danny Glover two years before uh, playing Murtaugh for the first time in the yeah. series. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Margaret Avery is in it. She's also nominated for an Academy Award for this film. Um, Willard E. Pugh plays Harpo. Akosua Busia plays Nettie, who is um, Celie's sister. That's Whoopi Goldberg. And we've got a small appearance by Larry Fishburne in there. Um, Morpheus pops up. I was like, hey. All right. Um, Just a quick synopsis of the film, if you haven't seen it. I completely stole this copy-paste from IMDb. It's an epic, an epic tale spanning 40 years in the life of Celie, played by Goldberg, an African-American woman living in the South who survives incredible abuse and bigotry. After Celie's abusive father marries her off to the equally debasing Mr. Albert Johnson, Glover, things go from bad to worse, leaving Celie to find companionship anywhere she can. She perseveres, holding on to her dream of one day being reunited with her sister in Africa. I think that's a, that's a decent, it's not incredibly specific, but that's a decent summary. I will say what's not decent is the tagline, which was, it's about life, it's about love, it's about us. <laughs> which, as I mentioned earlier to Ken, sounds like <laughs> this year, the finale of This Is Us. Like, um, <laughs> not not very good, I, but... I, uh, I mean, I... <laughs> we're, 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 hold on. I mean, <laughs> Take a minute to process that. No, I just want to say, uh-huh. I just want to say that uh, we're three white people, and the term "us" is, you know, sometimes you know used in the black community to refer to, you know, us. So, like, I, I kind of get it. You know, throwing that out there as the tagline, you know, it's about us. Like that, that kind of tracks a little bit. You know, I'm not the person to comment on that as, as a white guy myself, but you know, it's not terrible. It's just incredibly generic. Know. 
I think as a it is pretty generic. Yeah, That's true. But yeah. So the film was had a fifteen million dollar budget, grossed ninety eight million dollars in the U.S. and thus worldwide. I could not find stats for an overseas release, and. Perhaps of most interest to us is the Oscar history here. So, uh, Josh, you said you knew the Oscar trivia about this. Fill us in. Yeah. Yeah. So around like, um, I don't know, in college, shortly before college, shortly after college, I got really into, you know, Oscar facts and stuff like that, as as I think all three of us did, which is part of the reason for this podcast in the first place. And uh, this movie is tied with the turning point from 1977 mm. for the most Oscar nominations without a single win. Dang. This nominated for 11 Oscars, did not win a single one. Ouch. And, I mean, uh, during our Johnny Belinda episode, we discussed a few movies that went 0 for 10 at the Oscars. Um, the Irishman, True Grit, American Hustle, etc. But 0 for 11's only been done twice uh, by The Turning Point and by The Color Purple. It's it's weird. You look at this and you're like, and I'm a little surprised it didn't go, for, it didn't go 0 for 12. Because there's a yes. key nomination missing here. I was going to ask you guys. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys. Is, is this the most nominations ever received by a movie without receiving a Best Director nomination? I couldn't verify I that. believe it is. I think it is. Yeah. It kind of has to be. Right? I think like, after what? this is Dreamgirls, I think, with eight. Uh, I think. Eight? Um, eight. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. And, and what's wild to me about that statistic, 0 for 11, no Director nomination. Now, later in the commentary, I'm going to be critical of some aspects of Spielberg's direction. But just, if you're going to go, this movie is 11 nominations good, yep. somebody directed it. Like, right. Dune was 10 nominations, no director. It won six awards and, I guess, directed itself. If you like this movie well enough to go, three acting nominations, two from women who haven't been in anything before, right? right. Someone's directing the picture, right? So. Yeah, well, and- and Whoopi Goldberg has been very open and honest in interviews and when questioned about she she loves this movie and obviously gave her a lot more attention um, and and gave her a lot of credibility. She's admitted that she went in, she had no experience acting on camera, she didn't know exactly what she was doing, and she confronted Spielberg about her insecurities with having to do it. And without him, she's not sure that she could have pulled it off because he really did have to step in. And kind of not only calm her down and get her comfortable for the production, but also guide her through a, a film, an entire film production, because she's a total stranger to it, really. Um, and she's she's great in this. I thought she, she was is. really she really is. good. Yeah. Uh, but also no- notably, even though Spielberg was not nominated for Best Director of the Oscars, he won yes. the Directors Guild of America Award he did. for Best Director, which, he did. as we discussed in our Oscar episodes, Oscar episode many many months ago at this point, um, the DGA and the Best Director Oscar. So often line up, they've only diverted nine times in history, and one of those times was when Spielberg won the DGA in 1985, his first DGA win, but was not nominated at the Oscars. So I want to ask you guys, it's happened twice since, where someone won the DGA, but was not nominated for Best Director of the Oscars. First time it happened was Spielberg 1985. Who were the other two? It's, it's um, well, it's Ron Howard for Apollo 13. Ron Howard won the DGA for Apollo 13 and then was not nominated for Best Director. Who won Best Director of the Oscars that year? Uh, was that Mel uh, Gibson? Was it Gibson for Braveheart? Mel Gibson for Braveheart. What's the second time it happened? DGA yeah. win, no nomination for Oscar. I got this. Do you, Ken? I, I do, yeah. Ken, go ahead. Go ahead. I think it's uh, Ben Affleck for Argo. So ben much Affleck more recent. Ben Affleck won the DGA for Argo, was inexplicably not nominated for Best Director of the Oscars. Who won that year? Ang Lee for Life of Pi. Ang Lee right? for Life of Pi. Because Ampus told him to Argo fuck yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a weird line from that movie. Okay, so uh, other other award-related things. Oft said, too. A weird oft-said line. Yes, yes. 
Alan Arkin got nominated for Best Supporting Actor basically for saying that line three times yeah. in that movie. Yeah. It is weird. Regarding the color purple, I mean, this is this is the first of three times the DJ winner isn't even nominated, and still one of only eight times the DJ winner doesn't even win the Oscar. So it is it does fall into a very specific uh, bit of Oscar uh, Oscar trivia, infamous Oscar trivia. And 0 for 11. If you look that year, too, at the director, so we, we discussed this when we did Jaws, because Spielberg was not nominated for directing Jaws, famously, and was thus replaced by Fellini. Do you see who, quote-unquote, replaced him this year? Uh, it's, uh, was it uh, Akira Kurosawa's That's nominated correct. for Ryan, right? For, yeah, for Ryan. Which yeah. I, I don't have a problem wow. with that nomination at all. I don't have a problem with that. Um, it's just... Uh, are all of the other off the top of my head? I can't remember all of the other. It's other four for four. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so perhaps more conversation on that later in the series. The film only was nominated for one BAFTA, Best Adapted Screenplay, and it lost. Okay, but <laughs> what do we? What, what do the three of us know about the BAFTAs? They like British films. Well, <laughs> that's one way to put it. <laughs> they also don't typically award black people. That's correct. Anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence. Denzel's never won a... Has he been nominated for... He's ever nominated I for BAFTA? He, he's been nominated for, I want to say, nine Oscars. I could be wrong about that. And he, I think he's been nominated for either one or zero BAFTAs. And if it's one, it was very recently for Macbeth. And I think before that, he'd never been nominated the BAFTAs. Yeah. Denzel Washington yeah. had never been nominated the BAFTAs. And uh, it, yeah, so... Yeah. Not surprises. I, I, uh, never mind. I'm not going to say anything. No. <laughs> so... Uh, I'll hold my tongue. It, it did win the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama for Whoopi Goldberg, Lost Best Picture, Best Director, and then nominations for Oprah Winfrey and Quincy Jones, who's the other person we should talk about behind yes. this film. I, you can't, I think, you, I don't think we can talk about this movie without talking about Quincy Jones, considering Quincy Jones is pretty much, I think, the, the most powerful mover behind the scenes. For yeah, this. he was a producer on this, and I believe he's the one who rec- who kind of smoothed the seas a bit with Alice Walker that like, hey, Steven Spielberg, even though he's a white man, according to Jones, like we'll be able to handle yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I understand too. Is, yeah, this just to throw this out here though, this is the going from the very beginning. Alice Walker wrote the book, and then she's going to sell the film rights. She doesn't sell the film rights actually to Quincy Jones. She sold them to John Peters and Peter Goober. John Peters, Bradley Cooper, and Licorice Pizza. That's right, John Peters. Woo! No way for being yes, being played wow. by Bradley Cooper in in P. T. Anderson's uh, Licorice Pizza. He loves tail so much. He loves it so much. It's going to kill him. One Do you day. know who his wife was? His significant other Barbara, Strysand. Barbara Strysand. Strysand. Barbara Strysand. Yeah, um, sand like the ocean. But Peter Goober is he goes on to win uh, Best Picture for for Rain Man, but he's most famous for for producing Bat, Batman, the, the nineteen eighty nine Batman. And for nowadays being co-owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Golden State Warriors, and Los An- one of Los Angeles' soccer teams. I think FC, not oh, Galaxy. Wow. Sounds like he has a lot so of money. This, yeah. uh, in other words, she sold it to two guys you wouldn't expect to make a film like this. Yeah, yeah. That's true, yeah. It, last, last fact, it won the National Board of Review, of Review Award for Best Film and Best Actress as well. So, well, also real quick. So Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones was nominated for Best Picture as a producer, but he also did the score and wrote the song uh, about Celie's Blues. Yeah. How many Spielberg movies uh, don't have John Williams doing the score? So this has got to be one four? of only a few, right? It's like I think not, I don't know. not I don't many. Know many of the four. typical Spielberg collaborators are missing from this as I well. I was gonna say that. Well, yeah. Tell and us, I, Josh, who's gone? Uh, I don't know offhand who's gone, but uh, his. 
did he ever work with the cinematographer again? Is this the only time yes. he worked with this? this um, he's he's done three. So this is Alan um, uh, Alan. Uh, uh, what's his? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Devour or Devour? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> I don't know why you're looking at me, dude. The, the <laughs> cinematographer in this one also did E.T. and Empire of the Sun. So he's right in the middle okay. of his collaboration okay. with Spielberg. Um, but it's pre-Yanus. It's pre-Yanus until another few years. And it's the fr- it is the first film that he um, that where we don't have a John Williams score for a Spielberg film. Um, I know no Michael Kahn Sp- editing. Michael Kahn's not editing this. Um, I mean, that's the thing. We've talked. We're talking nowadays. It's 2023. We talk a lot about the fact that John Williams and Steven Spielberg have have been working together for uh, 50 years. Michael Kahn has been working with Spielberg since the late 70s as well. So, and they're both in their early 90s, both Williams and Kahn. So Spielberg is getting to the point now in his career where um, he's at this point not not for the color purple, but at this point in the 2020s, he's he's looking at probably getting new editor, a new editor and a new composer simultaneously in the coming years. Not necessarily because either one will be gone, but um, we're not sure how much, uh, how much time they'll actually be spent working in the next few years. Um, It's, it's, but yeah, this is the first departure to your point earlier. I'm fairly certain Williams didn't, uh, let's see, Williams didn't compose bridge of spies or ready player one. And I don't think he composed he didn't work on West Side Story either, right? So I think this is the first of four, which is that's that's impressive. Williams has done and, all and of the sp- only one until 2015, from what it sounds right, like. So, so it's the, the first, only one of 30, yeah, the first 40 years of Spielberg's yeah. career. It's all John Williams except for the color purple. Yep, it's Quincy Jones instead. So there's uh, I, I want to get to the Spielberg of it all in a moment, but there's uh, I don't know if you know this a remake that is I think a yep. post production at this point and it's yes, a musical a remake musical. that's yes. correct yeah that it's based is, on the it's based on the Broadway production yeah that's right yeah and it's slated to open around Christmas time of 2023 directed by uh, I'm gonna butcher another name uh, Blitz Bazaul who directed Beyonce's Black is King and. Okay. It, will star Fantasia Barino, Taraji P. Henson, Daniel Brooks, Coleman Domingo, Corey Hawkins, Her, uh, Halle Bailey, David Allen Greer, John Baptiste. Academy Award winner Her, by That's the right. way. And Academy Award winner John Baptiste. And Academy Award winner Louis Gossett Jr. Louis Gossett oh, Jr. Louis, oh. um, yeah, so look out for that coming to theaters near you around Christmas time. So let me ask you about the Steven Spielberg of it all, because this is where a lot of the controversy around the film surrounds. This is an interesting piece of his filmography. So just to recap real quickly, Jaws was 75. We got Close Encounters, 77. 1941 and 1979. Uh, <laughs> Raiders in 81. E.T. in 82. He does a little bit of a, a segment from The Twilight Zone in 83. Temple of Doom, 84. And then... Poltergeist, theoretically, in 84. So that's true. Then The Color Purple. Cynically, you can look at this as Dude Wants an Oscar. What do you guys? I was just going to bring that up. Okay, I was just going to bring that what, up. Yeah. What would you say about that, Josh? You go first, and then Ken. I'd like to hear after that. Well, before this, he'd made um, some immensely, immensely popular movies, including uh, he made the highest grossing movie of all time twice. Uh, Jaws had the record, and then E. T. had the record. So he immensely, immensely um, popular director, and also like well regarded too. Like it's not like these are big budget, uh, high grossing movies that are dismissed critically. They're they're beloved by everybody, and yet. Uh, no Oscars yet. Um, he'd been nominated, uh, as you m- noted, he wasn't nominated for Jaws for Best Director, but he was nominated for Close Encounters and for Raiders. He was nominated for Best Director for Raiders uh, and for E.T. He was also nominated for Best Picture for E.T. Um, 
And at the DJs, he'd been nominated for all three of those movies, plus for Jaws. And, you know, hadn't won yet. So I think this this is the cynical question. is like, did he take this as as an Oscar play? You know, we, we, we mentioned in our Jaws episode that uh, there's a famous video of him watching the nomination Oscar nominations in real time for Jaws and looked like he was expecting a Best Director nomination and looked very disappointed that he did not get one. So um, this is 10 years after that. Yeah. But, like, is he still kind of in that mindset? Well, I think, and I, I think just to tease out the kind of cynical assumption here, which maybe is correct, but nonetheless cynical. The assumption is you look at the rest of what he's done and it's popcorn popcorn entertainment, most of it being adventure, thriller, sci-fi. And this is the first, you know, serious Oscar drama epic it's a, it's costumey a hist- movie. Right? Yeah, it's a period piece costume drama. Um, well, not full costume. I mean, kind of costume drama. Well, I think I think that's the less cynical read. The cynical read is this is his first Oscar play. The less cynical read is this is his graduation from a thrills, like a, a kid's movie, thrills and chills kind of movie guy to a more adult-oriented prestige Correct. movie guy. Yeah. You know? I don't know how, I can, how, how I'd want to respond to the, the, the cynical question of it all because the irony being in retrospect, um, those other films we just mentioned – historically are far far better appreciated nowadays exactly and exactly, would yeah. be embraced far more readily um by by in hindsight, in hindsight. yes yeah exactly in hindsight well in in his defense et was was beloved by both critics and audiences hence why it did land a best picture nomination so it's not like spielberg has been like toiling away like hitchcock in in a, a subgenre that the academy just doesn't want to touch um it's that he's there. They're just not willing to reach out the extra distance to, to, to award him for any of this work. And The Color Purple does seem the more traditional Oscar movie. And hence the 11 nominations. It does. It's more traditionally Oscar Beatty. Notably, you know, he was not nominated for, nominated for Best Director, but he was nominated for Best Pictures Producer. And this is his last Oscar nomination before he finally wins eight years later for uh, Schindler's List. Mm. Another yeah. a serious adult historical drama. Right. Yes, an adult-oriented prestige picture for in, sure. In his defense, that one is a lot more personal. Um, the, the color purple mm-hmm. is an odd. The fact that it's just odd that he accepted. I know there was. I've read that there's reluctance on his part to accept this this job. Um, Quincy Jones had to kind of put a little pressure on him, and Alice Walker wasn't even sure at first. He waived his normal fifteen million dollar fee and accepted DJ minimum instead. And so. That's here, and I'd like to bring this up, and it's going to be somewhat difficult for us to discuss it, as we mentioned previously, because you can't see us, but we're all three white guys. A lot of the controversy around this film can come from, is Spielberg the right person to be making this film? And on one hand, the argument could be, this a white dude shouldn't be doing this, they should give this to a black woman. Another argument could be, this is some really serious, heavy stuff. Why are you giving it to the Indiana Jones guy, right? Um, so well, Quincy, mm-hmm. Quincy Jones's pitch to Alice Walker was, mm-hmm. in order to get this made, we need to work within the system. And there's no one more in the system making the kind of movies that people are going to see than Steven Spielberg. That was his pitch to her, as I understand it. And, yeah, and so there's an interesting thing I think that's brought up here, which is, because Spielberg also has always been, even though he is... All, a white man, white Jewish man, he's always been pretty liberal, pretty open about his support of the Democratic Party, pretty open about his representation of the, the downtrodden, the underdogs, 
Um, he's, he's, he's always been that way. But still, I think you could ask, is he the person to be telling the story? Do you guys have any comments on that? Yeah, there was a clip that I saw going around recently that I guess is from like 2017 based on the context. But it's uh, Denzel Washington, I guess, on the press tour for Fences. And someone asked him, I, I, I didn't see the, I'm not sure I saw the question asked, but I saw his answer. And the question, I think, was about this kinds of things. Like what, what you know, who should be telling what stories, I guess. And Denzel had an incredibly smart answer about um, culture. Mm about like cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. And he said that like, you know, Martin Scorsese made Goodfellas, Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List. Spielberg could have made Goodfellas. And Martin Scorsese could have, you know, would have made a good movie if he'd made Schindler's List. But he, there's things that Steven Spielberg understands that Martin Scorsese does not. Uh, Marty you know? actually passed on Schindler's List. Correct. For that yeah. reason. Well, be, yeah. it, it's to, to what we're talking about, the fact that Spielberg, he's had reluctance doing these films. He's got a history of it. With the color purple and Schindler's List, both times he did not initially want to direct either one of them because he didn't feel that he was he was the person to do, to to do it. And you're right, Schindler's List. He specifically, even though he was the one who had the rights, he was the one producing it. He went in search of a director who would handle it. Scorsese was one of the people he approached, and he had to be told, "No, look, you should be the one to do this." And on the color purple. I think a lot of it has to do with Jones being like, we need somebody who knows exactly how to make a film that will draw audiences to the theaters. And um, yeah, I mean, he, he ends up winning over Alice Walker, but it is a very, very unusual choice. And I would be very interested <laughs> to to think of the alternate. Like, what, what would this film have been if it had been directed by somebody not not white, not Jewish, somebody who had any kind of knowledge or personal experience with the American South um, at all. Because Spielberg, one of his one of his hesitancies, he's not from the South. He's from Arizona and California. Again, there, there's a there's a lack of cultural understanding. You could assume on Spielberg's part, given like what the story is and who the characters are. And um, I think it probably goes without saying that like if this movie were to be made today, Spielberg would not be making it. I mean, this movie is <laughs> it's getting made, made today, today. And, yeah, which, and Spielberg's not making it. So so I have two kind of follow-up questions to you guys about that. The, the man who is making it is um, of African descent. I, I believe he's from Ghana. But he's a man. And this is very much a feminist story. This is very much a lesbian it story. It really is. Yes. And so I think you could also raise the question there. Should the, Now, this guy has the Beyonce seal of approval, which... If you have the Beyonce seal of approval, like, sky's the limit for you, right? Queen Bee says, yes, you're good. Um, but how much of that is a problem where you are just looking at what Spielberg looks like and how much of it is actually a problem that you see on the screen? Can you guys point to parts in the film where you're like, this really lacks authenticity? Well, I mean, you th- you actually just touched on something. This film does not I, – I, I don't think this film – uh, is as as queer as Alice Walker had written the novel, and what I mean by that Spielberg is Spielberg brought that brought pulled those back pulled out pulled back on those elements a little bit. Yeah, yeah there's, to there's Alice Walker's dismay. There's mm-hmm. supposed to be the story in the story itself, the original story. There's more to uh, the relationship between Celia uh, and Sugar. Celia and, and Sugar. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Whoopi, the Whoopi and Margaret Avery roles, and that doesn't play out in the films. There's a, there's one scene. Where it's it's Spielberg allows there to be su- suggestion, and uh, he pulls back. I mean, he he definitely puts the brakes on it. And part of that part of that, I think, is exactly what Quincy Jones hired him to do. Like, 
we need we need to reach audiences, right? So we're bringing we're working within the system, and Spielberg is going to know where to put where to pause on some of this material, and yet you're taking away some of Alice Walker's intent. Well, and and I partly can sympathize with the you got to do what you can in the time that you're given, but you know, so if you watch that scene, the kiss between Celie and Suge, most of it is obscured in the blocking by. I believe it's uh, Shug Avery's head. Most of it's obscured there. And, and okay, but there's problems with that, but I kind of understand within the context. One issue I have with, with some of the directing he did in terms of reeling things back is the scene where Sophia hits the man, it, where she says, you know, hell no, hell no, right? right? Yes, in the truck. Yes, um, yeah. about being my maid. And then she hits that man. And the car pulls right in front before you see her hit the white man. But then we see her get, like, pistol whipped by the cop. Right. Mm. And I'm sitting there going, okay, what's Spielberg doing here? Is Spielberg trying to just direct our attention to the brutality of the, you know, the, the, the white authorities' violence against Sophia? Or is he afraid that if we see Sophia hit a white person, we're not going to sympathize with her? I'm not really sure what he's doing there, and I'm That's really question. I'm, I'm really not working sure which on way that to go still. because it, it has the effect of both. It has, I mean, it does have that effect. You don't actually see, uh, you don't actually see her end up hitting the mayor. Um, in fact, later I, that whole storyline we can get to in a little bit because I've got some issues with just that's part of the that has to do with the story, I guess too. Um, but you're right. I don't know what what the intent is because ultimately you don't see it. You don't see her hit him. You just see all of these people who are acting aggressive. They surround her and she gets pistol whipped, knocked to the ground and ultimately arrested. Um, but you, and you see all of that violence toward her while all we see is her, her getting frustrated and angry before the trucks cuts in front of the, the camera. So it does have the effect you're talking about. I don't know what intent Spielberg had, or maybe both. I don't know. Josh, what was your reaction to that scene? Well, first of all, it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And, like, what happens to Sophia in the next, like, eight years is extremely upsetting. Oh, well. yeah, she's a completely different person. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that, like, who Sophia is up to that moment in the movie, like, she is someone that takes no shit. Uh, she's, <laughs> yeah. married, she's, married to, she's married to Harpo, and, like, when she gets hit by Harpo, she gets back. <laughs> she does, you know? yeah. And, and then and, takes the um, kids and leaves, and there's no conversation. Exactly. Right. Like she's just like she I'm is, out. She's a strong-willed <laughs> character, and and it's and good for her. Like it's a it's a it's kind of an exciting character to see in the movie. Well, she's such a contrast to Celie. Yes, she's the she is the antithesis of Celie. Celie, who uh, uh, gets beaten and takes it, who gets abused and takes it from a number of men in a number of ways. And I mean, the whole movie is like Celie kind of learning to not take it. That's like kind of the, the whole you know, arc of the movie. And like Sophia is like an early example, an early template for her to do that. So like we know who Sophia is, but like her doing that to Harpo is one thing. Her doing that to a white person is another, you know? So like the the context of Sophia doing that makes perfect sense to us as the audience, but um, uh, the townspeople don't give a shit what the context is. They just, uh, you know, pistol whip her and put her into servitude for eight years and pull her away from her kids. Right. Well, let's talk first in context for just to remind everybody listening, like we're talking about the very early 20th century. So in the, in Georgia. So yes, white people doesn't matter what led up to the encounter. 
a black person, a black woman hitting the white man context who's the mayor yeah, exactly. of the town. Mm-hmm. It does context. You're right. Doesn't matter at all. The fact that she's hitting him, well, she's committed the crime. She's in the wrong. Um, and she's and she's particularly dangerous. They have to remove her immediately. Yeah. I I just wonder with that scene. I want to see the violence because I want to see like. Well, you. It's satisfying. I, I, I want to see. I want to see Oprah hit somebody. Like, right. I, you it's know. satisfying if you but, see Sophia actually be able to. Right. Vent. Right. So, so I wonder if I'm missing the point or if this is, is this a scene that's clearly directed for white people in the 80s, you know? I didn't have that thought. I mean, it's an interesting point you're making. I mm-hmm. didn't have that thought, though. I didn't, okay. I didn't, I didn't, okay. I'm not sure I really, I don't th- know if I internalized that we didn't actually see her hit okay. a white person. I just I wanted mean, to see Oprah hit somebody. I, mean. I didn't <laughs> I didn't internalize it that way, but that shot did, I will admit that shot threw me off and frustrated me. I didn't, in retrospect removed almost uh, 40 years after the fact i don't like the, the i don't like the truck cutting in front of the camera in that moment we can come back to this but like that reminded me some of the blocking in this is really bad like i think i think spielberg is like i've said it before on this podcast and i'll say it again like i think spielberg is one of the best people to ever uh know where to put the camera his blocking is usually incredible the best to ever do it the, some of the blocking here is like really bad. Okay, and I'm, let's, I'm kind of a gap. Let's not it. come back to that. Let's go go to that now because I had a similar okay. note about that, and I know that you're one okay. who's very appreciative of his blocking, particularly in West Side Story. So, yeah. yes, please say more on that. Well, I, I guess my overall point is that as we kind of alluded earlier, Spielberg's not working with his usual people, and so like this doesn't really feel like a Spielberg movie to me, and like you know we kind of already talked about like why would he decide to do this movie, and like you know we kind of already circled that wagon a little bit but like it, i don't know like he usually has like really good oneers that are like subtle where he has like basically three or four well composed shots in a single like minute or 90 second long oneer and you're kind of missing that here um i'm thinking specifically of like the scene where we first meet sophia and she and harpo tell harpo's father danny glover that uh she's pregnant and like the the shot is like behind danny glover's head and Harpo's on one side of the frame, Sophia's in the other, and it's split by the back of Danny Glover's head. And it's like a, I don't know, it's like a really shittily staged shot. And then they repeat that exact same shot at the jukebox later, again, behind Danny Glover's head with Harpo and Sophia on the other side. I'm like, what are you doing? What is this? There are some very odd choices. Well, like when, we, when we're introduced to Danny Glover, I really don't like the the shot of the, through the, the frosted window, and it's just kind of focused yeah. on Danny Glover and, like, and Mr. on the, well, the porch. Celia's in the foreground on one side of the window. Then there's the frosted window and like Danny Glover kind of framed by the frosted window Correct. behind her. Yeah. It's a very, it's an odd and kind of on the nose. Stagey. Oh, it, yeah. Very stagey. That's, yeah. that's something that I, my notes said that a lot of his, he, he often is quite good with inserts as well. Yeah. Some of the things that he chooses not to show, I think, can be really good. There's a, I remember, I don't care for War Horse, but there's a really great thing in there where you see the men go into war on the horses, and then it cuts to just the horses running. Mm. You know, and and yeah, and you're like, yeah. oh, that's good. Well, one of the things he doesn't hear is horse, that's good stuff. Is yeah. is uh, when in the very beginning when she's giving birth, and that screen door is kind of methodically slamming, and I think I I, I kind of get what he's trying to do there, but. I feel like it's distracting, and a lot of it feels heavy-handed. I think a, a lot as well with his compositions involving the razor before she shaves. Yeah. Um, before she shaves, Albert, Mister. Yeah, uh, in particular, and this is not a staging thing. This is a, a cutting thing. But there's that sequence second time where you think she might actually she might actually Sweeney taught him, uh, and it, <laughs> it it cross cuts with the ritual that's going on in Africa, right? And I'm going. 
What are you suggesting with this crosscut? Surely both of them have knives, and both of them are about possibly drawing blood from a face. Both of them are about some form of initiation. But in the cross-cutting, it seems to suggest that they're both leading to a similar thing, whereas one is an initiation that is into kind of a uh, native community tradition that seems positive, seems almost sacramental, and then hers is going to be a murder. And even though he kind of deserves it, I'm sitting there going... What are you suggesting by this? What is she being initiated into if she does kill Albert? I didn't quite understand that parallel. Right. It's not. It it it's kind of conflating the two because they don't really work. I, I don't think at all. I'll go. I'll go a step further. I was confused because I was not sure what was happening in the Africa sequence. I thought that was also leading up to a murder mm, because I thought mm-hmm, they were. Mm-hmm. You know, to your point, they were conflating it. And like, she's obviously about to. Well, you know, she doesn't actually do it, but she's about to slit Danny Glover's throat. And I'm like, are they about to kill this kid? In Africa, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what's right. happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. I was confused by it mm-hmm. by the cross. Even though, mm-hmm. even though the the witnesses on hand in Africa, like including his own fam- the kid's own family, it's like they're not reacting. So clearly, they're. I I didn't really. I wasn't really scared for the kid, but by juxtaposing those two things happening simultaneously by cutting back and forth, he's hinting at it unnecessarily, and it it does throw you off because, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. I think part of part of the problem of this film might be the very fact that it's not necessarily that a, a, a white man, as Denzel Washington is suggesting, like Steven Spielberg, can't make a film like this centered around African-Americans, black people living in the early 20th century in Georgia, um, despite having no personal experience. He can He's a competent filmmaker who can make a good film, just as, as Scorsese could have done Schindler's List. The problem is he doesn't inherently know the story. He doesn't inherently know what to do with the characters necessarily. So he's far more reliant on the people around him. And to Josh's point, he's missing a lot of his usual people that he can trust and he can rely on. Alice Walker is a consultant in this film. You know, Quincy Jones on the set constantly producing this. Spielberg is not necessarily directing this, I think, like Spielberg normally would. So in any given scene, there's a lot more input than there probably normally is in a Spielberg film. I, I will say there was one oneer that I liked that was more Spielbergy, and that's when uh, I guess Shug Avery is at the house, and Danny Glover, who's very smitten with her, I know where you're to going take with care this. of her. <laughs> we follow Danny Glover up the stairs carrying a tray of food to oh, take to Shug, uh-huh. and then like it kind of like follows him as he kind of goes into the room, and he disappears into the room, and then the camera like pans back over to the stairwell where we just saw him and the tray just is thrown and hits the wall and splatters food all over the wall that was a good one one it's great the way that she can come in and completely undermine his authority and dress him down yes absolutely again again a template for Seely that she spends the rest of the movie trying to learn and that scene just is now I can't remember. It's been a, it's been a couple of weeks since I actually watched this, but is that scene that scene's immediately following another great moment when he's deciding to make the meal for for Suge, and he's terrible at he has it. no idea how to work the kitchen. Any of <laughs> the appliances the in the kitchen, he almost he almost blows up the kitchen. Yeah, it's yeah. the cut back and forth between him trying to figure out how to work it while while Celie's just deciding to sit and watch. It cuts from her sitting there back to him, and you he brings the car- the jug of kerosene into the kitchen, and that's how he's going to start the 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 stove, and it and it just cuts back to the empty chair rocking back and forth because Celie has darted out of the room, and you just see the glow. Yeah, I do have a bit of an issue with this though. Like we're recalling it and we're laughing, and it is meant to be funny, and it's like, is that an appropriate tone for a movie that begins with a second, like time that a father rapes his daughter? 
Like, it, the, the tone of the movie is very bizarre. Yes, it is. This movie, and I, I was going to, I wanted to get to this because it, it's not just the tone. Like you said, that that moment is is very funny, and I did laugh at it. I thought it was, I thought it was really well done. If it had been in a comedy, kudos to Spielberg for shooting it that way. But throughout this film, the music doesn't help. Oh, now, God, I think the no. score the score is oh. done by a team. Quincy Jones is the com- is listed as the composer, but he's got a team of people working on the composition. This this is a a, a light hearted, I think, score that does not fit at all with what's going on in the movie. Yeah. So Alice Walker said everything about it seemed wrong, especially the opening musical score, which sounded like something out of Oklahoma. Did you guys catch? There's a dee 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 that I'm like, is this getting into Jurassic Park? Yes, there was. Yeah, there <laughs> yeah, is. It's, There's it's, a little oh, bit. Of... Okay. Yeah. Well, to, I guess to the point about tone, a few things. Like, I haven't said yet. I didn't really like this movie very much. Okay. I, I don't know if any of us really yeah, liked it very a... much. It's it's a miss for me. Yes. Okay. Uh, again, I'm kind of confused why Spielberg wanted to make this, but uh, ironically, some of the stuff that worked best for me were the comedic bits. And, like, this is uh, a pretty uh, – there's some harrowing subject matter here. And I guess to your point, it seems kind of weird to have the comedic bits that this has. But, uh, number one, the few times – Harpo falls through a roof, roof multiple times. Yep. And both times it got me. I thought that was extremely funny. And uh, there's a great – there's, like, a brawl at the um, uh, the juke joint. Okay. And um, there's a really, really funny bit where uh, a girl – Oh, yes. A girl at the juke joint slaps Sophia. Yes who we know doesn't take no shit at this point. Mm. And so as soon as this girl slaps Sophia, the piano player closes piano and says, well, time to go. Because he knows <laughs> shit's about to go down. And like, that's, a, we don't, that's a good bit. We don't even, we don't, and again, we don't see <laughs> Sophia actually hit her. All we see is the effect, if I recall, of her basically flying across the room and into the little, like there's a, there's a, a floor, a door in the floor. I think we're on Celia's face. And she Correct. basically, we just basically watch her reaction as this brawl begins. Right. And, um, Again, odd tone. Yes, well, odd tone. In, 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 yeah, there's 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 plenty of humor in the film, but to your point, it doesn't fit at all. Um, uh, Dana Ivy is in this film. She plays the mayor's wife. She's the one Sophia ends up working with. Her character is like in a completely different film. I don't know where she's coming. I don't know where that character is coming from because she seems like she's in a screwball comedy. Ken, you mentioned the whole mayor storyline business earlier. Is that and the issue you had with that? Is that what you were talking about or it's probably a good jumping off point for that no. uh, well I, I mean that whole that whole portion of the storyline i know it's coming out of the book because it's incredibly depressing what happens to sophia or and 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 just the amount of torment she goes through i don't i don't know the the problem that the, the that that storyline provides is despite how sad it is and it gets to you I think I think you can cut through the humor, and the problem is the humor being present makes it incredibly uncomfortable to sit through. For example, when Sophia gets out and she ends up going to work for the mayor's wife as basically a contingent—it's well, contingent, I guess—her parole is contingent on her working for the mayor's wife in, in service, even though she's out of prison. She's she's got to work for the the family that she harmed, and you've got Dana Ivy who's basically <laughs> learning how to drive from Sophia. And she's racing around town, and people are jumping out of the way, as if we're in like a sitcom. Well, I think it's I think it's supposed to indicate that her reckless behavior, that to her is just an adventure, is and charming, has so much higher stakes for Sophia, which we see comes to a head 
when she's trying to get the car started at home and all of Sophia's family, the men of her family come out and try to help. And she flips her shit and is like, these black men are attacking me. Yeah. Which is not at all what was going on. Of course not, but yeah. it, it's... The, and and the her tone. defense is, I've always done so much for you people. Right. But the, right. the tone is so frustrating because the, the scene where they're in town when she runs into Celie in the store, the townspeople all just run out of the way when they come out of the store, get back in the car. Dana Ivey's got the, the, the stupid early 20th century car goggles that she throws on her face and off she's going to go. She can't drive straight. She's running into things. She's swerving all over the road. And ah, ha, ha, ha. But it's a horrible. It's like Wiley Coyote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just, it took me completely out of it and angered me a little bit, to be completely honest with you. With, with that moment, too, that we just mentioned about her saying, you know, I've done so much for the colored people, her words. Yeah. What, what seems to be critiqued there in the text is basically the limits of anti-racisms, that it's not enough to just be a white person in a position of power that kind of throws money at the problem. And then when you're actually around the people who are trying to make a connection with you, you participate in the things that you say you're against. Do you think the movie succeeds in being, you know, Walker said that her, her intent with this was of the novel was to get respect for black women for the suffering they've been through, for the freedom they should have, for the choices that they can make for self-realization. Does the movie succeed in that anti-racism? I don't think so. If I'm being fully honest, I think I think the strongest examples we get in this film um, to that to that to answer that question are Sophia, who we then see broken, um, and then and Suge to a degree. Those are the only two women we really see kind of fully in their own at any point during the film. I know Celie is supposed to have the arc, but I don't know that I feel it, really, Okay. by Josh. the end of it. I, I like Whoopi's performance, but I don't know that I feel her arc is fully realized. I would say I'm not sure anti-racism fully captures what Alice Walker's stated goals were, what you just said. Mm. Um, I do think she succeeds in kind of showing the... Um, I guess what this movie shows is how essential black women are and how much their labor contributes to both the men around them and also the white people around them. You know, it, it very much literally shows how Danny Glover would be a mess sitting in a, a pool of his own vomit if, if Celia wasn't there to he take is. care of him. Yeah, we even see him. And uh, he's a child. Yeah. He's a child. And uh, same with uh, the mayor's wife and Sophia. She is completely helpless. She's a child without Sophia's guidance. So, like, I think it succeeds in that sense. And, again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the whole arc of the movie is Celia kind of acknowledging her own power and um, demanding the respect that the power she has commands. Um, Whether that factors into the anti-racism at all, I'm not really sure. Um, I think it's interesting that, like, as I mentioned earlier, Sophia is an early template to what Celia could be. Because Sophia doesn't take any shit from anybody, but she eventually is broken down by working for this white woman, and it's it's almost like seeing Sophia broken down is what kind of snaps Celie too, and that's when she finally like tells off uh, um, Mister and 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 kind of commands her own power at that point, you know. Which is a very, I think, um, gratifying scene that dinner table scene. It is also a poorly staged scene. Yes, I would argue I just it's not a very well blocked scene. It's not a great, <laughs> but. It's it's a satisfying moment. I'm also not sure if that's entirely earned, given what we know about the characters who are in that room at the time. They don't react as you would expect based on everything we've seen prior to that scene. Like maybe they Danny Glover 
his character mr is mr is not the same i think in that scene that he has been previously well i guess to tj's point i also think it's very satisfying when she just holds up her hand and shuts him up uses the that's force so, on yeah, she's, that she's, she's good at exactly. <laughs> she force jokes him basically to shut him up that was um it is but it's also weird like she was i'm like what the fuck yeah. is she doing here uh-huh. yeah yeah i guess i will say I, I said earlier that i didn't like this very much i, I this movie's mostly missed it's not very successful in my mind but there are a few like i thought that scene was very satisfying and i think i thought the ending really worked yeah the ending worked really really well okay why uh well uh as the three of us probably know Movies are about relationships, and most movies have a central relationship that the movie is about. In this case, it is uh, Celia and Nettie, mm-hmm. and her sister, mm-hmm. who uh, the movie opens with the two of them as kids. And uh, the first act is mostly Celia and Nettie. Even when Celia is married off to uh, Danny Glover, Nettie does come live with them for a bit. So, like, uh, Nettie is the most important person in Celia's life, and then she's literally ripped away from her at you know towards the end of the first act, and she's uh, she goes off to Africa and. Um, she Nettie is missing from Celia's life for the whole movie, and other women come into Celia's life as like a not a replacement to Nettie, but like you know filling that role. With Sophia, Sugar Avery, etc. It's kind of just like a chain of women coming into Celia's life, and uh, eventually, what really is the turn for Celia is learning that uh, Mister has been keeping letters. Yeah. Nettie's letters from her, exactly, and uh, learning that Nettie actually has been reaching out to her for all these years. That's kind of what snaps her into action and makes her. You know, take the power back. And then the end of the movie is an extremely cathartic scene where Nettie's been missing the entire it's, movie and then yeah. comes back. I had in my notes for that for that the ending. It's it is that is is quintessentially, I think, Spielberg. That is a Spielberg ending. Not only does Nettie come back, but like uh as TJ alluded in a very upsetting sequence of events, uh as a young girl at like age thirteen or fourteen, Celie does have two babies by her father which i think is by the way something information that is like too casually dropped yeah yeah it's kind of dropped a narration way too casually yeah. but regardless and you know again stuff in the first act is about Celie wondering how these babes are doing if they're alive if they're being taken care of etc and not only does nettie come back in the scene but so do her two children when she hugs her son who can barely communicate to her that, that worked so yeah, well for it me. does that it worked really, does. really really well and so i don't think this movie works overall but the ending really worked for me really well and i i think something that's that's key with the letters as well is the the novel is an epistolary novel you can tell so the novel the novel is told in letters and because in the first act she says dear god blah 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 dear god blah 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 blah, blah. You know? well she she writes these letters to God, but then she writes letters to Nettie and, you know, to Nettie and then Nettie writing back to Celie. And what's key about that is the role that writing has within history for anyone, but particularly for uh, black Americans and for female black Americans that are kept from you know, white people kept black people from learning how to read and write because, as Frederick Douglass tells us, then it creates a consciousness. It creates an ability for you to think, to think. Think that what you're thinking is valuable to record what you're thinking. Writing structures consciousness. Yeah. And so keeping those, depriving her of that is more than just depriving her of a voice. It's depriving her of any sort of agency or feeling of selfness. And furthermore, a a connection with a sisterhood, in this case, a literal sisterhood, but a sisterhood that Walker's working on. um, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Ken, you had a point you wanted to make, and then I'll come back to the sisterhood here. Uh, well, no, even even on that point, I guess um, the fact that the fill the, the the ending I think feels so cathartic. It's not wholly satisfying. Like there's 
Mister doesn't get his comeuppance really in this movie. He's he's left at the end. She leaves him. Yeah. Oh, of course. But he's living across the road. Like literally at the end of the film, this 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 moment, this this wonderfully celebratory moment when Nettie and Celie's children have returned to the homestead. Celie is there with Suge. She's there with Sophia and Harpo, and the whole family is together. And Mister's like can see it all happening while he's on his tractor or whatever down the way. And he's the one, as we learn, he's the one that actually contacted Immigration Services or whatever to try and help get Nettie and the kids to come back. So there's this kind of like, oh, at the very end of the film, Master, you know, finally, finally did something right. That kind of breaks with me because it almost feels, again, this is where I feel like the Spielberg of it all comes in. The ending yeah. is kind of neatly tied up, which is mm-hmm. something Spielberg likes to do often for something like this. He didn't want to end it. Um, too dark, but I think that's key actually for what the film is doing in attempting to be about the realization of personal consciousness and some sort of hope for liberation. I think that actually is really key to what the film's doing and what the, what the novel's doing. And that that goes back to the the sisterhood business. Um, one of the things that Walker's doing is she coined this phrase called womanism as like a response to or a correction to feminism. She never really defines it in a satisfying way all she said was womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender and (laughs) it was explained yeah it was explained to me this way there there was something called i'm gonna botch this again but it was the comahee river collective which met from 1974 to 1980 and it was a black feminist lesbian socialist organization that met in boston and what they were doing was saying hey feminism and civil rights have failed black women in the United States, particularly black lesbians. And so one of their their great contributions was they coined the phrase identity politics, which right now is a really controversial term, but they meant... They, yeah, yeah, they basically said all politics are identity politics. And they're pretty much responsible for conceiving of interlocking systems of oppression. In other words, intersection, uh, intersectionality, intersectionality yeah. yep. uh, which is, again, very key to a lot of the conversations we're having now. So it, it was very much trying to go, hey, civil rights movement, don't forget about women. Hey, feminist movement, don't forget about black women. Also, there's a whole different set of concerns once you intersect uh, femaleness, blackness, lesbianism, all of these sorts of things, right? So she's sisterhood is key to this because a lot of them felt as though feminism was not creating an actual sisterhood with women of color. So with this in mind, I, w- I want to ask you guys a question. This was, I-, I read something and I couldn't find it again, but it was perceived as anti-man and particularly anti-black man. There were a group of black men that wrote lots of letters to the editor for various publications when the novel came out and when the film came out that were like, hey, this is not as progressive as you think it is because there is not a good black man in this. We all look like horrible abusers, rapists, etc. Not that we're necessarily the people to vindicate or defend that accusation. Did any of that come up while you were watching? Well, it's a, I think it's a true true point. I mean, there's there's really no man in the film, no black man in the film who's perceived all that well. Um, I mean, Harpo is kind of a He's a pushover. He's a bit of an idiot. Um, he's he, he also abuses Sophia. Um, granted, she's the, the, his. Pro- Unfortunately for him, he's met his match because Sophia is not going to be pushed around without pushing back. Mister um, obviously is is just well. He's a rapist, as is their father. Father, as is yeah. his, and his father is also just as horrible. Um, 
he's got he's he's definitely uh overbearingly sexist um i guess shug's husband is is kind of neutral we don't get any bad interactions with him really um when she, so neutral at best at, is yeah, the perspective like, on men right in this mm-hmm. in this movie mm-hmm. yeah okay josh is that was that your experience with it as well basically yeah i mean like as i was watching this i that thought did occur to me that like you know not not just the black men but just men in general in this movie don't come out looking great um, oh, well i guess and i take that back sorry there is the there is the the, the guy who's adopted uh Celie's children in africa the missionary sure yeah uh and i guess i should say that uh it's my understanding that that certain chapters of the NAACP boycotted this movie oh. and I originally thought it was because it was made by Spielberg, a white man. It turns out that wasn't it. They were uh, upset about the rape sequence, um, the the marital the marital rape sequence of Danny Glover of of young Seely. Yeah. So like, like I said, you know, I, I get the complaint that men in this uh, don't come out great, but it's also like the perspective of of black women. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really have. <laughs> Again, we're not the guys to talk about it. I guess, but I don't. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a very general question, but we talked about what the movie's about. What do you think is the point? It's it's stated pretty clearly near the end, but like, what's the theme? What's the message? What's the point here? I kind of already said it. What I think it's 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 seriously being oppressed in a number of ways by a number of people, and slowly learning what power she has in these relationships with these people, and commanding the respect that that power warrants. And she does that by meeting various women. It is very episodic and mm. very novel-y mm-hmm. in that she's, you know, here's the Nettie section, here's the Sophia section, here's the Shogavery section, etc. And she's basically just learning from each of these people um, to not take any shit, you know? And she eventually does decide to not take shit. And that's, you know, it's it's the, the arc of the movie is her realizing her power and taking that power. So do you read that as she's supposed to be a stand-in and a model for oppressed black women and given a guide for... How, how to find a way to fight back? I think that's a pretty cogent read. Yeah, embrace, find and embrace okay. power. Because I mean, okay. That, okay. right? Because I mean, when you think of the color purple, purple is literally the color of royalty, power throughout history. Purple is purple is a symbol of power, and the idea that that um, they're they're playing amidst it at the beginning of the film, and it ends with um, with them again in the fields and uh, surrounded by the. the is that lavender? I think um, that they're actually. It's not not to, lavender, not to dive purple, into yeah. this, not to dive <laughs> not back into what we're talking about. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's this this idea. I think that um, yeah, they're getting their they're getting their voice, or they they need to be seen um, claiming their position. And that's how the theme, I think, is kind of really obviously stated at the end. Was talking about like walking by all the purple and not appreciating the beauty of it, which I think is supposed to stand in for the people that are the black women in this case that are being underappreciated, abused, not, not people don't not stopping and recognizing their beauty. Josh. Mr. Says during the climactic dinner scene that we've kind of already talked about, he says to Seeley, uh, dark quote, you're black, you're poor, you're ugly, you're a woman, you're nothing at all. And her response to that is to walk out the door and then hold up her hand to shut him up and then drive away. So I think that's kind of like the crux of the crux of all this. Yeah. You know? And what's what else that is underneath that, that I think, Maybe something, because we have Spielberg, it's not really drawn out as much. Also, it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie. But the way in which hierarchies are created by perceived levels of attractiveness, and also mm-hmm. there's an undercurrent in there that suggests colorism as well. 
uh, where Suge Avery is beautiful and she's lighter skinned, and then all these comments are made about Celie being how ugly Celie is and, and, and Sophia, quote unquote, looking. You know, you, you look like tar. They say right, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's actually one of the brilliant things that's done in the casting is they talk about how ugly, and particularly how ugly her smile is. Whoopi Goldberg has a beautiful ebullient smile that I think just lights up the room. I love her smile. Her smile is contagious. And everyone is is talking about how ugly that is. And then you find out that the point of the movie is that there there aren't sort of like possibilities for made by the society to recognize the beauty of these women that's right in front of them. You know, beauty, not just external beauty, also internal. But I, I think that's something that's kind of brilliantly done with the casting. She also doesn't smile much. You know, she doesn't. She doesn't have, like it's like, easy to say she doesn't have a good smile. Because never see her she doesn't have a lot of reason you know? to smile. Yeah, um, this is true. This is true. Um, one last point I wanted to make is, I, I think something this this text does as well that's interesting is when it, when it contrasts what's going on in Africa and it contrasts what's going on in the United States at the time. Africa, especially for Celie and Nettie, is the dream fantasy, right? Being reunited in Africa, and you can look at that as kind of having to do with like the Marcus Garvey back to Africa movement. But I think what the movie is saying there is the way in which Mr. becomes Mr. is an element of the corruptive eroding power of the patriarchy, which comes from whiteness in the United States. That back in Africa, the men are not like this. Her son, Adam is not like this because it's something that there's something about the power dynamics that are created by race, that are created by whiteness, that begin to kind of seep into and enable black men, not necessarily to be white adjacent, but then to assume a sort of power that then oppresses the women in, that, that are in their lives. There are, there are levels to oppressors and oppression, I guess is what you're saying, right? And like that is brought out, like oppression of white people to black people kind of like, you know, elides, you know, more oppression in, in you know, within the black community i guess is yeah and i think something that's significant about the novel is that it's it's really locating that as a a uniquely american phenomenon yeah um yeah do do you two have any uh final points observations i'm I'm kind of at the end of my notes and the summary here the takeaway i it's just the flaws are glaring in this film which is i know particularly for josh and i it's clear that we we are fond of spielberg um, it's not often that you run into a Spielberg film with this many, I think, glaring filmmaking issues. Uh, even when the films aren't necessarily winners, even when there's maybe something wrong with the story, he's a competent filmmaker every time you watch one of his movies. And there are just choices in this film that are made um, that are, I think, just a little obvious to any any film watcher, any, any moviegoer that... It's just not all fitting together properly. The performances are the best part, I think, of the film. Um, they really carry it through. Even though this is a really long film and it drags at times, you feel like it should be getting there um, much faster, kind of like me talking. And when you should get all the way through to the end, uh, to look back, it's really just the performances or the standouts, I think, for this film. Everything else is just you're kind of picking apart various aspects. Josh, your final statement? Um, I feel like I've said what I needed to say. Uh, overall, I didn't, it didn't really work for me that well. The ending really worked for me, but like, there's stuff to recommend about it. Um, weird one for Spielberg to have made. It doesn't really feel like a Spielberg movie in any meaningful way. 
Um, it, it, minus like the sentiment, sentimentality aspects that sometimes come to play, but that feels misplaced and wrong. Um, so like, you know, I did really like the sun shot, the the sunset shots uh, where they would often silhouette people against the sunset, and you can really see the grain pop on those. They're pretty gorgeous. But there's a funeral scene. I can't remember whose funeral it was, but it's kind of they do the seven seal shot where they're yeah, like, climbing yeah. the hill in, in silhouette. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I really liked the uh, the jazz scene with Shug in the uh, in Harpo's makeshift nightclub. Um, I liked that entire scene. I thought it, it sounded really terrific. It played well. Um, that's kind of a standout scene in my mind from the film. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, the other scenes that I liked best were the, were the ones filled with humor. And that kind of leaves me unsettled, to be honest. Yeah. So as far as you guys can judge, did this deserve its best picture nomination? Well, I, I think, I think we have to wait eventually for the recap to compare and talk about okay. other films that are nominated perhaps in 1985 as to whether or not it should have been um, within that year. Um, I don't, I don't really compare it very favorably to modern <laughs> Best Picture nominees, and yet, I feel like if it were made today, this film probably would land a Best Picture nomination. It, it, for, it would be made differently today, though. It would be. Oh, yeah, it would definitely the be made differently. The story would be told a lot differently. Yes. As a musical! But yeah, because <laughs> musical that's true. Probably, yeah. It's literally going to be made today. Man, I am I mean, we keep talking about the tone. I'm very curious to see what the musical version of this looks yeah, like. Yeah, for sure. You know? the, for well, sure. The, yeah. I, I haven't actually... I don't know if they're going to sand it down or what's going to happen, but I'm, I'm very curious checked, but this is kind of... This was not to, not, to, not to compare or conflate the two subjects, but like Sister Act, this was one of those things Whoopi Goldberg went back and decided to produce musical versions of films mm-hmm. that she had previously been in. Mm-hmm. Um, I I seem to recall The Color Purple doing getting a decent response it was nominated i think at the tonys i think so, so. we'll see how the film yeah. we'll, we'll see how the film plays out to be honest my concern isn't as necessary it on top of all of the problems there is with this film and trying to overcome them movie musicals in the 21st century don't really play all that well they don't generally they're not the strongest of yeah. products so we have john baptiste though so so the music yeah. the and music should trust. be fantastic that's that's a plus yeah um, but then again yeah. this this movie has uh what's the songs i think I think it's Miss Seely's Blues is the name of the song Shug plays. Yeah. That I, yeah. Correct me if I... Uh, oh, yeah, it was the original song nominee. It was. It um, was. Written, by the way, by Quincy Jones, Lionel Richie, and um, uh, Temperton, right? Rod Temperton, who is most famous for having written Thriller by oh. Michael, with Michael Jackson. Um, jo- uh, Josh, did Deserve the Nod? How's it compare with contemporary ones? I'm kind of thinking about that. Like, it, it, I guess this strikes me as the... This is the kind of movie that gets nominated for Best Picture a lot, but it's mm. also the kind of movie that I wish didn't get nominated for Best Picture a lot. Mm. Um, we've kind of talked about like some of the craft stuff works for me, some of it doesn't. I don't think the cinematography is very good, etc. I think the performances are great. I, I, I don't like this relative to some Best Picture nominees I've seen, but it's also better than some Best Picture nominees I've seen. You know, some some not very good movies get nominated for Best Picture, and like maybe it's more of a this isn't for me than a this isn't good possibly, or I don't know, maybe I'm being overly generous. Um, I'm giving you a non-answer, That's but okay. like, I guess yeah. I'm, I guess I'm kind of saying like, um, deserve. Uh, I'm being, I'm, I'm feeling the you role because normally you waffle like this whenever I ask yeah, you this question. Of course, um, <laughs> deserves a funny word. Uh, maybe it reminded me of the help. To be honest, it's an Oscar Beatty movie begging you to just look past its faults. Really, who who wrote the help? The the book or the the book the book. <laughs> 
I feel like Susan's something. I don't know. I'll find out it, in just a moment. The, the, I mean, I, I haven't seen The Help in a decade, but like that seemed... It, my memory of The Help is that's a little bit more wrong-headed than this is. Mm. And maybe I'm Catherine more Stuck it. color purple. There we go. Okay. Um, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. think The Help being made in 2011 is different than The Color Purple being made in 1985. Sure. Um, like I said, I think that if this were made today, it'd be made differently, as we were discussed. In their maybe defense, I, get it. I think The Color Purple, I think it's being made in earnest. I think these people are genuinely, I, unlike The Help, which is a, a much, much lighter in tone, um, than the color purple, the the passion is there with the color purple. I just don't think it all comes together. Is the problem? So yeah, maybe I, maybe it does deserve it. It's just not you know. I just wish it hadn't been nominated because I don't you know I don't think it worked for me. So okay, we effectively answered the would it be nominated today? I I if it was nominated today as made by Steven Spielberg or you know I, I don't I I think it would be pretty problematic and people will talk about how problematic it is. I'm very again curious to see how the the remake musical does. I don't. I didn't particularly care for the film, and I would say it didn't really yeah. deserve its nomination. I think there were a lot of films in the '80s and '90s that um, kind of filled a template like this, um, and you know, the sort of epic historical film. And I think they were easy, easy passes there. But that's just my perspective. Yeah, it's interesting that, like, as I kind of said at the top, uh, the reputation this movie has, at least in my mind. Um, it's interesting that we talked for, I think, like half an hour before we said anything about the movie itself. We just kind of talked about the context of the movie for half an hour. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of telling. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's reputation, at least in my mind, is again, context, not content. And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting curiosity in Spielberg's filmography. It's an interesting curiosity from an Oscars perspective. But like, again, I know so, f- so few people who've seen this and have like any kind of opinion on it. So... Yeah, it's it's a film with a bunch of tri- with a bunch of trivia possibilities, really. Like it's yeah. the film that got Oprah an Oscar nomination. When people ask why is Oprah an Oscar nominee, this is it. And she's she's also very good. You know, she's very good. This this is going to be the least hot take thing that was said today. She's great on camera. She um, is. <laughs> she really is. Will you watch this? Honestly, film? she might. She might give the best performance in there. I was going to say she's you got watch a, a this very wide range. Mm-hmm. The Sophia character. You watch this film. My immediate thought watching uh, Oprah Winfrey in this movie is I'm kind of disappointed she doesn't do more. She didn't try to do more stuff. Obviously, she gets as we were saying earlier, she gets her talk show syndicated the following year. Um, but yeah, it, it, yeah, there's a good, there's a lot of good performances. They just kind of get lost, I think, to history in the movie. An adequate film discussion once again. That's what we promise here at Serious Film People. <laughs> an adequate film um, discussion. It was about adequate. An adequate, about an adequate. It film. happened. We talked about movies. So that wraps up the color purple. The first episode in our 1985 series for the 58th Annual Academy Awards. We'll find out tomorrow night, dating this again, whether Steven Spielberg made another film that will go over. Ken and I both have the Fablemans going over. Josh has Steve taking home his third Best Director Oscar. I might back away from that pick. We'll see. I went on record on microphone on our episode that I think Spielberg's going to win. I actually don't think he's going to win, but I just kind of picked it to be different. I kind of like it. I like it. Next week, The uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Mwah! Kiss of the Spider Woman, Mwah. yes, uh, based on the novel by Manuel Puig, and very difficult to find this movie. It is it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we'll, perhaps uh, we'll we'll find out that it deserves more exposure, or we'll find out why it's hidden on the depths of the <laughs> internet. So that's all here from Serious Film People. Thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or questions, especially if they're nice comments, please feel free to email us at seriousfilmpeople at gmail If you have negative comments, then you can take it. As my mother said, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Thank you all, and that's it for me. Bye-bye. See you guys. See ya.